1: Newspaper since 1971.
0: Photos time of the Ben Jarowski show as I speak. It is Thursday, October 7th. Uh, the headline in the newspaper. I don't even have a newspaper uh, with me, folks, because I'm still in Los Angeles. Uh, the happy grandfather uh, helping my uh, daughter or my son-in-law out with the new kid. Uh, so I'm just going to make up a headline White Sox in playoffs. How about that for the headline? White Sox in playoffs, Tony Larusa, Dusty Baker, wow, White Sox versus Houston, but we're going to tear ourselves away, uh, from the White Sox versus Houston. The game's going on right now is record this uh, interview. Uh, and we're going to get really serious for a while. And then we're probably going to go back to the White Sox, a uh, little bit of White Sox talk at the end, but mostly we're going to be talking, uh, well, you know what? I'm not going to give that away. I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself.
1: Hey, Ben, it's great to see you. This is Jim Coogan. Uh, I am a most of the time trial lawyer, although at this very moment, uh, a little bit nervous White Sox fan as the first game of the division series is currently underway.
0: It, there's a heavy White Sox theme uh, today, uh, Jim, with my show or earlier in the day in the regular show. I had Adolfo Mondragon, ace attorney from the southwest side of Chicago. We're talking about his case. Uh, the City, Illinois State Supreme Court has agreed to hear his case regarding uh, campaign financing. Uh, and uh, he had his White Sox hat on. Uh, it was right before the game started. It, Jim got his White Sox hat on. Uh, and Jim's is wearing his White Sox uh, shirt. Uh, you know, it's funny, folks. I, it seems like the only guests on my show are White Sox fans. Uh, there's one Cubs fan, Miles Porter. Uh, that's it. <laughs> Miles, the only, everybody's ashamed to be a Cubs fan, and I don't blame them. The Pete Ricketts and the Ricketts family are a disgrace. Um and I talked about that at length in the earlier show, so uh, I, I don't need to pound them again. But uh, anyway, I will do briefly, uh, Jim, for your sake. Uh, Pete Ricketts, governor of the state of Nebraska, one of the Ricketts that owns the Cubs, went down to the border uh, with Gregory Abbott. It was one of 10 GOP governors, went down to the uh, border. The
1: border with Iowa?
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. The He's going to protect Nebraska from Iowans coming in from the east. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's funny. (laughs) Nebraska, last I looked, is not on uh, the border with Mexico. uh, And is a lot closer to Iowa than it is to Mexico. But they're very much worried about people coming in uh, from Mexico. Not so much worried about people coming in from Iowa. Anyway, shame, shame on you, uh, Pete Ricketts, uh, trying to... uh, scare people into voting Republican with their fears about immigration. And while you own a team, a baseball team that you pretend that is really open to all. Uh, so hypocrisy from the Chicago Cubs. We've learned to ex- deal with it. All right, let's 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 move away from baseball for a moment. And uh, uh, Jim comes on. We talk legal issues uh, mostly. Sometimes he does come on as a White Sox fan. We talk baseball issues. But let's stick with the legal issues for the while. I've got three topics I want to talk to you about. Uh, I'll do names. Names uh, Alex Jones, John Eastman, and Texas, the state of Texas. Uh, we're going to talk about the Texas abortion ruling, uh, the latest on that. John Eastman is the uh, lawyer uh, for uh, Donald Trump at one point with this curious interpretation of the uh, powers of the vice president and uh, how we determine who our presidents will be after an election. So we'll get into that, but we'll start with Alex Jones. And you and I have talked about him. Uh, In the past, Alex Jones, very provocative uh, podcast host. His numbers are far greater than mine, Jim. Uh, And he uh, is a conspiracy theorist. uh, And he is on the ropes. I didn't see this day coming. He's on the ropes, legally speaking, uh, as a result of some really inflammatory and ugly comments he made. Uh, in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook shooting, the school shooting back in 2012. So uh, why don't you take a moment to just explain to, uh, to people what the issues are uh, in this particular case?
1: Well, first of all, let's point out that junk food sells a lot easier than broccoli. So just because Alex Jones might have a lot more viewers or listeners to his content does not mean it's of a higher caliber or more meaningful content. I just want to I'll say I'll take that. that. So, yeah, Alex Jones, a longtime purveyor of conspiracy and nonsense. and actually the I think the maybe the junk food comparison is apt because it's stuff that really is designed to tap into people's basest instincts and give them it's the nature of conspiracy theories. Give them something that's simple defines the enemy and allows them to really engage in it and kind of sink their teeth into it. And I think your uh, sometimes producer has has made references in the past, or his theory is that Alex Jones is just doing performance art, which could absolutely be the case. It would be hard. I would actually have trouble believing that somebody believes all the things that that guy says. Um, And I think he's even made that argument, or his lawyers have at times, that you shouldn't take what he says literally because... It's uh, it's entertainment or it's performance performative art and it's not serious journalism or news reporting. But in the case of the horrible shooting in Sandy Hook, um, after that became national news immediately, and in the aftermath, as things got uh, examined. And the individual families, the families of the children that were victims became profiled and people kind of got an understanding for what the story was. The angle that Jones took, because, of course, in his world, this is about um, defending gun rights and tapping into people's fears in general. you know, a lot of times the the purveyors of of gun theory and, and Second Amendment proponents are mostly tapping into people's basest fears. And if I can't protect myself from all the bad guys that are coming at me, uh, I'm going to die. And if I don't have a lot of guns in my house, I won't be able to protect myself. So that's who he's trying to appeal to. So how can, and I could if we were, everybody could probably recall, after that terrible incident, there was a more sober, at least for a little while, discussion of whether or not there should be a more national um, fleshing out of gun safety rules and some kind of legislation could have come out of it. So the knee-jerk reaction from folks that are either actually agents of gun manufacturers or just see themselves as Second Amendment enthusiasts was that they had to figure out some way to spin this so that it didn't fall into the obvious case of if all these Bushmasters are out there, this is going to happen again, and failing to do anything about this is failing to protect children, which I think fail, you know, protecting children probably pulls well on a bipartisan basis. So in his Infowars world, uh, Mr. Jones went ahead and tried to make this out to be a conspiracy. So rather than it being the real the real tragedy that it was, which led to the deaths of several small children, he made it out to be uh, the they, the children didn't exist. They were concocted somehow. This was a, this was a false operation put on by people who were trying to undermine gun rights. The, there were crisis actors. That was, that was a big term. I think that might've been when that term started to come into the mainstream usage, that even the people that were supposedly the parents of these children are frauds, they're actors, they're paid, they're paid, um, I don't know, by the Hollywood left. I can't even, I don't know all the, I, I try not to digest all of the uh, threads to this nonsense. But but that was the essence of it. And because he made it to be such a large issue and peddled it on such a regular and intense basis, that led to his followers, his listeners, people who I have to assume have other issues in their lives, took it upon themselves to start even confronting the parents. I mean, it got to that point. They would, they would walk up to the people that in their minds are deciding that they're somehow crisis actors and video them with, with smartphones and cameras and confront them about how they're lying about this whole thing and aren't you really part of this conspiracy? So some of those families finally took it upon themselves to sue Alex Jones. He's in, he produces a show somewhere outside of Austin, uh, I assume in some sort of bunker. And so they sued him in Texas, in that county for defamation, for for basically making false statements and for portraying them in a false light. So essentially that, as we've talked about in this show over the years at times, you have a First Amendment right to free speech and the government of your state, your county, the federal government cannot abridge that right. But there are limitations. And one of those include, you can have a civil cause of action to sue people if the lies that they tell you about you cause some sort of damage. So that's the, and that's the essence of any lawsuit, uh, civil lawsuit, what the person did wrong, causally connecting to some sort of damage. And that's what they did. They went after him because I think in their minds, there were few other avenues to try to stop him from saying these things because they were obviously false and possibly even stop him from just being such a terrible actor in the universe, uh, because of how offensive this was to them, frankly, very offensive to anybody else who looks at this reasonably. So that's where we found ourselves up until recently that that lawsuit had been pending and had been ongoing in Travis County, Texas.
0: Yeah, and uh, uh, let's get into something uh, that you said. I just jotted the notes down and get uh, your response to this. Uh, At the outset, you were saying as a possible defense, uh, he talked about it's performative. In other words, he doesn't really mean it. So follow me in this, folks. Uh, as as Jim was saying, he said for the longest time he was saying these incredibly cruel things about the slaughter of 20 school children. I think it was 20 school children and six adults in the school. So 26 people were gunned down at, in Sandy Hook Public School in 2012. And he said it was a false flag operation. It was a made-up operation. It was a staged operation. There weren't really... Uh, he, he, he said, well... Uh, that it was like actors, so nobody died. It was, this was the, the idea he was putting out there. Uh, and it was very cruel to uh, parents who lost their children. So that's the suffering uh, at, at play, Jim. Uh, and, but then, you're right, when he was deposed, uh, he was suggesting, well, I don't really believe in it. It's just an act. It's a performance. I'm like, you know, a seal. I'm doing a trained seal. I'm just putting on a, staging something at a circus. Uh, when And when you mentioned that, I thought, well, the courts have allowed parody as an excuse. You know what I'm saying? Like, like if you're parodying somebody, uh, you get away with it. You, uh, you have a right to like, I remember, what was it? Hustler Magazine, uh, this famous case where uh, they were, I forget which uh, conservative, uh, they were parodying uh, maybe Jerry Falwell and they, and he sued them. I think and, it was. Uh, and they were victorious, and the argument said it was a parody. So what's your thoughts about uh, arguing that performative art, if you you don't believe in it, you're just saying it because it's part of your show, uh, as a defense? What's your sense of how that will fly as a defense?
1: Well, I I don't know if he could have made a credible defense with that line in this case. The, The issue is where we found ourselves today, or why we brought this up on this show, and you, you brought it to my attention, is he's doesn't really have the opportunity to even make that defense. He, this, he's been sanctioned now because he was so, he behaved with such bad faith towards the entire litigation. But I'll still try to answer the question. I would say this, that theory, and I haven't read the Hustler case recently, but I think that theory is premised upon the fact that what you're doing has some public merit because Public figures are not protected in this to the same degree for even including defamation cases. They're not protected in the same degree as a private person. And Posner, I think, is the one of the lead plaintiffs in this case, Mr. Posner, and I think Ms. De La Rosa is another parent. They're not public figures merely by the by the virtue of the fact that their children were murdered by Adam Lanza. So, if his if he said parody, I think that would. Still fail because you'd have to prove that there was something either funny or sarcastic, or you were it was a send up of them. I don't know how you. What's your goal? Like you're making fun of a parent that's child was murdered. I don't. I don't even know how you could plausibly make that claim because at some level the judge still can rule whether that's a valid affirmative defense or not. But even beyond that, they're private citizens. So if you are comparing it to the Falwell case, here's somebody who. The reason why Hustler was targeting Jerry Falwell was because he was a Christian crusader and believed that pornography was evil and corrupting society. So if you're, if you're Larry Flint, of course, given Larry Flint's attitude towards the world, he's going to take that on and he's going to enjoy the fight. And he's got the platform to mock somebody like Falwell for all the arguably hypocritical things about Jerry Falwell that uh, undermine his moral authority. So it's a bad analogy, just like probably any other analogy that Jones and his defense could have come up with. And I think had they had they gone that route, if they were trying to say it's per, even performative is some sort of spin on that and that there's some other social value in what they were doing because they are Second Amendment proponents or something like that, they also cut their own knees off by failing to participate in the discovery process and having, and flouting the court's authority and having so much contempt for the very system that the judge just finally gave up. I mean, the language is pretty stark. Uh, Do you mind if I I could just read you some of this? this It's probably worthwhile for the audience. Um, This was Judge Gamble in her decision where she uh, imposed this and essentially entered a judgment against him and said that they're going to have, he's going to have to pay. An escalating series of judicial admonishments, monetary penalties, And non dispositive sanctions have all been ineffective in deterring the abuse. Furthermore, in considering whether lesser remedies would be effective, this court has also considered this defendant's general bad faith approach to litigation, Mr. Jones's public threats, and Mr. Jones's professed belief that these proceedings are show trials. So the point there is Jones, in his contemptuous behavior, has actually tried to rope the entire legal process, the entire defamation case, and Harris County Court or Travis County Court and Judge Gamble as some sort of extension of the hoax itself. That anything that's going on is somehow somehow part of this vast democratic conspiracy to eviscerate gun rights. And clearly the other the, the earlier parts of those, that, that sentence where I read that judicial admonishments, monetary pon- penalties, the normal process, just so the listeners understand. When you are engaging in a civil lawsuit, both sides are supposed to exchange information, try to do it in a in a gentlemanly or gentle-personly way, cooperate, and sometimes you'll fight. One side doesn't want to turn something over, you go to the judge, judge, judge referees the dispute. But if the judge is saying to you, Mr. Jones, you must turn this thing over, and he just flatly refuses or files some preposterous response, then she's going to start penalizing him. Okay, $100 a day until you do something about this. So clearly she was at wit's end. That's what, that's what this is describing. She's she's putting in that order the escalating efforts that she went through instead of just jumping to a uh, boardwalk. You know, she went through Marvin Gardens and all the little Baltic avenues around the board and tried her best to try to get this person to participate in the litigation in a meaningful way and act in good faith. And he apparently completely refused to do so.
0: Yes, uh, and, uh, and so he's going to pay the price uh, for that. Listening to you uh, go through what uh, Alex Jones, uh, how he's behaved in this lawsuit, brought back memories of uh, Donald Trump. And I see there's many parallels between Alex Jones and Donald Trump. Obviously, Trump achieved a lot more than, Donald Trump, uh, than Alex Jones. He became president of the United States. But they both... Uh, they both manipulate, this is me speaking, they both, in my humble opinion, manipulated their audience with lies. Um, and when called upon, uh, criticized for uh, lying, publicly lying, they kind of shrug and pretend it's like it's all a joke. This is a standard Donald Trump response. I was just joking in his age ago. He was being ironic. Uh, they'll say it even the most preposterous things, like the, when he was clearly not joking or being ironic when he t- said that one... Possible uh, remedy for COVID is to uh, drink bleach. If you remember that press conference, there was, <laughs> <laughs> and they try to turn that into a joke, uh, and and then you both use the, the legal system, Jim. Uh, wait, wait, by the way, we'll probably do a Trump update. I just re- realized that Trump just filed against Twitter, a suit against Twitter. You use the law, legal system, when you want to attack somebody, and then you act like this pure innocent victim. When someone comes at you and say your the legal system is being abused and violating your First Amendment rights, um, both I see parallels between between Trump and Alex Jones. I'm wondering if you agree with me on those parallels, and if so, what consequence does this Jones case have for future uh, litigation against Donald Trump?
1: Well, there is certainly a, I mean, Trump, Trump's. Abuse of the legal system includes that he uses it to threaten people, to bully people, to file all kinds of frivolous lawsuits over the course of his his uh, career as pro- maybe one of the most prodigious litigators in the history of this country. It Actually, that may not be an overstatement, uh, including all the times that he's been sued by people because he refuses to pay bills for construction work or for suppliers or for restaurant things or whatever over the years, golf course, supplies. Um so the parallel that you identified in terms of their attitude towards things is completely apt. I mean, um, in the various things where, where the, the times that Trump has been sued, his attitude, not only when he's caught in lies, is that he mocks the system afterwards and just says, well, you can't take what I'm saying seriously or whatever. I don't really care or, or tough, tough for you that you care about this issue enough to, to be bothered by the fact that I lied about it. It's the same attitude about anything that he's been sued for. Um, I mean, he should not—he absolutely should not have been allowed to continue to violate the tenets of the emoluments clause by being invested in his businesses, including having a hotel that's down the street from the White House and from Congress, where foreign dignitaries are staying. I mean, that's—that is the textbook definition of what the, the framers were concerned about when they created that part of the Constitution, because at the time. The United States was a very small place and completely subject to the, the powers of the British, the French, probably even the Spanish. I mean, it, so the notion that any president could be under the sway of a foreign power be, because of a financial influence was a serious concern and frankly was a legitimate concern from 2017 through 2021. It's just that the case never got heard because they stalled it for long enough and it became moot once he left office. Um, His response to that just didn't care, just didn't do anything. If you recall, there was that preposterous press conference where he stood up there with uh, one of his lawyers who claimed that he had divested himself and that Eric and Don Jr. were running the businesses. But people could see there were reams of paper. They were blank pieces of paper. It was on it. It was that was a legitimate hoax. That was actual performance art. He's standing up there doing that. And somebody grabbed one of those papers, or they got a close-up of it, and they were just blank pieces of paper. And supposedly that stack of paper, there was, I don't know, three thousand pages, was supposed to be all the documentation of the, the business changes that they'd made and filings that they'd made with secretaries of state's offices to change the management structure for those businesses. So it's it's a completely reasonable analogy. And your other part of your question was whether that whether this case might have any implications in the future. Um, I think. The moment that we're in with respect to January 6th, and depending on who says what about that as we go forward, it could have some impact because while a Travis County Court's decision is not binding anywhere else and doesn't create precedent for anyone else, uh, it certainly could provide a roadmap for somebody else to use defamation law like all the voting companies have done to sue Rudy Giuliani. And uh, the other lawyers, I guess, that were working for Trump and and trying to claim that that and, uh, that he that Trump did not lose the 2020 election, and that those are all uh, that the entire electoral process was a hoax. And in the process, they were defaming the voting rights um, voting rights machine manufacturers essentially, and saying that their technology could, was hacked and was. Uh, flawed and had all these problems, and that was the reason that they were vulnerable, and therefore the entire process should be questioned. So I guess it's already been exploited as a tool to deal with some of these other actors that are just basically lying for their own selfish gain to, to manipulate things that are so obviously not the case. It's so obvious that Trump didn't win the 2020 election. It's so obvious that Sandy Hook was not a hoax. And yet there's people out there trying to make money. It's essentially always to make money too. There's really no other purpose. I don't really see any other purpose for Donald Trump to have been president other than self-aggrandizement besides financial gain. And for, for, for uh, Alex Jones, financial gain is his sole motivation. And again, he also probably likes the attention.
0: Uh, the, the other uh, case that uh, popped into my head while you uh, were talking, uh, Jim, is the uh, E.G. Carroll lawsuit against Donald Trump, a defamation case uh, filed by a writer, E. Jean Carroll, who claimed she was raped by Donald Trump. And when her allegation was made in an article, uh, Donald Trump essentially called her a liar. And then she filed a defamation case against him.
1: Uh, well, even and, even slimier, he said, he wouldn't do that. She's not my type. That was an yeah. you know, even more disgusting way to respond to it. Uh, kind of basically admitting that he would rape somebody if they were his type. I mean, I guess that's the, I don't think I'm going too far out of school to say that's the logical conclusion of what he says there.
0: Yeah. So I, I see some parallels uh, between uh, uh, the case with uh, uh, Jones and the defamation case against Trump uh, by E. Gene Carroll. Uh, and similarly, uh, Donald Trump has been really been stonewalling in that case every way he can. Now, most of the stonewalling he's done uh, has been yeah, make, conveying the argument that uh, as a sitting president, uh, he could not be uh, uh, required to deal with this uh, uh, lawsuit and that uh, uh, that he should be defended by the Justice Department. Last I saw, uh, Joe Biden has seconded that. I was really disappointed to see that Joe Biden had signed off under that argument. So they, I believe Justice Department lawyers are still defending Donald Trump in that matter.
1: They are. Not, I was not thrilled to hear that either.
0: Yeah, that was a very disappointing uh decision by Joe Biden, I don't know why uh he did it, but uh, uh so I see some definitely. I'll tell you what, before we get to Eastman, I've been obsessively watching and talking about the show. I don't know if you've been seeing uh, uh watching it uh, impeachment, Ryan Murphy's reenactment, a dramatic reenactments like a 10 part series on Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. Uh and uh Jim, I don't know if you've been watching it, but saw or- first
1: episodes, I, they're on my uh they're on my DVR.
0: Well, one of the pivotal moments uh, in the early stages of that, uh, well, the actual historical event uh, and also the dramatic uh, series is when uh, Paula Jones's lawyers uh, convince the Supreme Court uh, to rule on her behalf uh, and say that a sitting president can be sued. Uh, And that opened Bill Clinton uh, to force Bill Clinton to participate uh, in the lawsuit and sit for a deposition. And that, of course it was at that deposition where he lied about his, uh, affair with Monica Lewinsky that led to his impeachment. So it's like, it's still there. You know what I'm saying? That's like, these issues are so really alive and just part of the, the political process, uh, you know, Jim, and they're all kind of connected in a way. And, um, it's just, it's just like uh, I urge everybody to check out that uh, Lewinsky, uh, if, if for nothing else, uh, just to get a little uh, legal history here. Uh, did you, did, do you remember that in real time, Jim, when it actually happened, or are you too young?
1: I remember the impeachment. I remember the bubbling up before it vaguely, but I would have been maybe like in my sophomore year of high school. <laughs> I don't mean to, I don't mean to make you feel bad, but. Um, then I remember when it when it did happen. I was taking a cool, I think it was like government or something was the name of the course. But when he was actually, they were having the impeachment trial, so that was an amazing opportunity for that teacher to like we you know we would watch some of it on TV in class because it was such a rem- I mean at the time there had only been one impeachment in American history of Andrew Johnson, so that was enormously remarkable stuff that it was actually happening. So I, I don't think I appreciated the rest of the. How did it get there until later on? But yeah, I mean, it was a it was a pretty smart strategy to entrap him like that. And guy couldn't help himself, I
0: guess. Oh, the guy's a complete idiot. All right, we'll move on from Bill Clinton. I could talk about that for like another hour, and I'm going to really show some restraint here uh, and move on uh, to John Eastman, who is the attorney uh, that somehow or other found himself in the inner office of the White House advising uh, President Trump on issues of the Constitution. Uh, and this story broke. Well, it's in the um, Bob Woodward's latest book. I guess that's where it originally broke about the role he played, the memo he wrote. Uh, and then the New York Times has picked it up. The Washington Post has, has run with it, of course. Uh, why don't you give folks a little just uh, background on this? Uh, what were the arguments, some of the arguments uh, that Eastman was making in his memo uh, to Donald Trump?
1: So essentially, and I people might remember that in real time, there was this weird performative exercise going on in certain states that were close states, you know, the most controversial states, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, etc. where people were just showing up and claiming that they were the real electors and they wanted to to have their ballots be counted and that that be sent to Washington. There were there were actual, you know, television news coverage of security guards, uh, county sheriffs people, or people who are working for the state uh, police in those states, turning those people away. They were videoing themselves saying, we're here to cast our ballots, even though they were not casting any ballots. They did, whatever they're saying didn't exist. Well, it turns out there were there was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes there that this lawyer, Mr. Eastman, had written a memo that outlined a process to try to manipulate the the way that the Constitution, the the 12th Amendment of the Constitution, and a law that came about in the, I think it was the 1880s or something like that, right after the Civil War, to try to figure out a way to count ballots and, and, and enact the provisions of the Electoral College. Basically, the theory was, if there are competing electors from a particular state, then the vice president who's overseeing, if everybody remembers, this is what actually happened on January 6th. You know, there is a process. Uh, the electoral college, though each state certifies what their electors are going to do. Illinois votes for Joe Biden. Uh, Indiana votes for Donald Trump. And all those, except for a couple states, all the votes automatically go to that person. And there's an actual process, a legal, technical, boring, normal, non-controversial way that that then gets transmitted to Washington and the, the Congress, both houses of Congress participate in a process that on a designated day, which has become on or around January 6th, to actually say who's first. Okay, the first in line is, I think, Alabama is the first in alphabetical order. Okay, Alabama's electors go for President Donald Trump and it's eight electoral votes or whatever the number was. And then you go to the next one, and that might be Arizona, which in this case was a controversial state. And that's actually how Eastman wrote his memo. And his suggestion was the process that the Houses of Congress are going through that day is, legally speaking, it's presided over the sitting vice president. It's a very nominal, not powerful, non-discretionary role. It's very much like in the impeachment trials. Where Chief Justice of the Supreme Court John Roberts presided over those proceedings, but he really wasn't—he wasn't making legal rulings. There weren't competing briefs on admissibility of evidence and uh, motions to strike witness testimony. Like there was any witness testimony anyway. But he wasn't acting like a judge would in a trial court. It was a very titular role where somebody has to do it. Somebody has to preside over the Senate, and it can't be a senator. It can't be somebody from the. White House, because it would be part of the White House, so the founders figured it would have to be the Supreme Court Chief Justice. So, similar to that, in this case, Mike Pence, as Vice President, was supposed to oversee what was happening. In reality, that role doesn't come with any power. He's not, he has no discretion to do anything, as I'm kind of repeating myself, but he's not supposed to. Mr. Eastman's theory, as he laid out in this memo, was that Pence could take an active role and actually decide to skip over states where two sets of electors were sent well there's two sets here i can't make any judgments about it but what i can do is pass this one and he even suggested in the memo it's kind of like that theory of uh it being better to ask for permission or ask ask for forgiveness rather than ask for permission he even outlines his actual advice was don't say anything to anybody before you do this just go for it um The irony being now we're learning from that book that you mentioned earlier that Pence apparently reached out to former vice president and apparent unexpected sleeper American hero, Dan Quayle. Um, So he didn't follow that part of the memo and just sort of do this on January 6th. He actually did reach out to someone because for all of his many flaws, Mike Pence must have had some pause about whether this was A, a good idea, or B, whether he could do it or see what would be the fallout if he tried it. So um, basically then the the rest of the memo says, once you go through this process, and then he outlines the mathematics behind it, it will leave a certain number of electoral votes. It will discard electoral votes that basically all went to Biden. And if you do that, you're left with, I think the math was Trump winning by 10 electoral votes, and voila, he's been reelected. That was essentially his theory. And there was a second theory, which was something that I know a lot of political commentators were concerned about leading up to the 2020 election, which is in the event that the Electoral College ends in a tie, because there's an even number of electoral votes. In that it's never happened before event, I think, I don't think it's ever happened before. Um, the The backstop in the Constitution is that the House of Representatives decides who the president is. However, even though at the time Uh, even after I think Nancy Pelosi managed to to actually sit that House of Representatives group that was elected in the 2020 election on January 4th. So they were all the new House on January 6th. And there was still a very bare majority for the Democrats. That's not the formula they use when the House decides a presidential election. This is super nerdy technical government stuff, but the wrinkle is... It doesn't go by the number of votes; it goes by how many states are controlled by which party. And at that time, it would have been twenty-six to twenty-four, as close as it gets. And Eastman even says it in his damn chart. I don't, even, I don't mean to swear on this podcast, but I know I'll, half your half your guests, like Mister Mondragon, just go for it. The other half apologize for it. Uh, even in the memo, it refers to that that it, that it's the barest possible majority. It's almost as if he's conceding that they have. No mandate, and it's, it's just by the skin of its teeth. It's, it's like a, it's a self-awareness that the cheating is even not even by much. Um, so he, that would be the, so the mechanism would be if everything that Pence did was thrown out because let's say instead of when you throw out all those votes, now nobody got 270 electoral votes, and that's not enough. Now you go back and say, well, because nobody got 270, even, even when, you, when you pull the numbers back, and Trump wins 232 to 222, that's not 270, now the House decides they would have 26 Republican-controlled uh, leg- the legislative groups from those states, are 26 Republican groups, they would then elect the new president that way.
0: Yeah, yeah. really well done, by the way. Uh, totally contrived legal argument, in my humble opinion
1: i do feel a little dirty having gone through all that even if, I, <laughs> even if i said it somewhat accurately i feel a little weird
0: no just repeating it is is sort of like reading porn uh it's like legal porn <laughs> and uh so yes you are a little you're gonna have to take a shower after this show uh, but it, it you know how cynical i am or jaded i am i always say like lawyers uh, you've heard me say this so many times just make it up as they go along uh, to, to, to win whichever, uh, fight was in right in front of them at that moment. And then the next day they'll just say something else, uh, to win that fight. That's in front of them in the moment. You're taught that in law school for crying out loud. It's, it's, uh, it's the reality of the profession. Uh, but when the stakes are so high, it's one thing to do it, you know, when you're just like a, the course of a, like a, of a squabble over property rights or something over, you know, a minor lot or something in the city of Chicago, whatever. But, but when this, that's, it's one thing to do it there. It's another thing to do it when it's, you're talking about who will be the next president of the United States and whether you're just going to throw out all the, you know, the constitution, just shred it. And it just, I, I, I find it, uh, it's like every time I think, that we've reached the limits on how far Trump uh, was willing to go to get whatever he wanted, whatever it was that he wanted, we can go further. And I, I got a feeling that a story will break, Jim, after we're done with this conversation and we'll talk about it the next time about some other preposterous scheme uh, with dealing with justice department lawyers. And there was, and there's, it's always these underlings in the justice department, you, you know, who think they could get ahead by appealing to Donald Trump's vanity, telling him exactly what he wants to hear. And then giving him some like Roy Cohn cockamamie, uh, legal argument that would defend it, uh, and say, go with it. And then he'll be like, go with it. That's what I want to hear. And it's, it's scary. Uh, it really is. I find it, uh, very scary and frightening because the Democrats more or less play by the book. And now we're seeing that the Republicans just want to rewrite the book, uh, every time. And I don't know, like what Eastman put out there. Yeah. Mike Pence, uh, on the advice of Dan Quayle, former vice president, Dan Quayle, as you pointed out, decided not to go there. I I don't, who knows what the world will look like the next time, 2024. You you get what I'm saying with some of these quote unquote, uh, well, I don't want to call them reforms, but election law changes that give uh, citizens, Republicans in each individual state the right to do what Eastman wanted Pence to do, which is to throw out electoral votes and replace them. It's very frightening uh, moment, uh, Jim. And I think we have to take, it very serious, we can't view this as performative art, uh, which is sometimes what Republicans say, by the way. Some of the lawyers, Giuliani and, and the like, say, well, we didn't really mean this stuff, we say. But I've, I do believe it's a frightening. Do you share my uh, my sense of fear in this, with this stuff?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, some of the headlines about around the Georgia voting rights law, and we're focusing on whether or not you can provide water to people in line that that is a valid thing because look as we as people it's always it's kind of strange that we sort of just take it for granted that every election day you're going to see television news coverage from Atlanta and Jackson Mississippi and uh, Birmingham Alabama specifically the urban centers of those states where the heaviest pop that it's got the heaviest concentration of black population that. They're all standing in these enormous lines. So in other words, it would only target that. It's not some rural county on the north border with Tennessee where there's only 6,200 voters and they've got 15 voting machines and nobody stands in line and everybody votes in three minutes. Um, So that part, it's disturbing because it calls back that historical precedent of deliberately under-resourcing the most heavily populated parts of the states where it just coincidentally has the, the voters who are perhaps the most vulnerable in the first place, and have historically been the subject of the most controversy over whether they could have a vote in the first place. But the other issue is the provisions in those laws. In Texas, I think is the same thing. Uh, Florida, for sure. Uh, many more. I, sh- I don't have the list. But the notion that the legislatures can just override the decisions of the civil servants who normally have election official positions, whether it's chief of an election board or secretary of state or whatever the, the, the way this particular state is configured, that they can just choose to essentially unilaterally without any particular evidence, unless they just have to state, we have found this is unreliable and that's enough without prov- proving why, um, and they can just throw those those results out, That's that just shouldn't be. And then the bigger reason uh, that that shouldn't be is there's a reason why in a majoritarian political system, you need to, you decide like, okay, majority rules. It's because if the minority always ruled, the majority eventually runs out of options and has to blow up the whole system, have a revolution. I don't know what else they do. If even if they organize and get the votes out and get all their people out and have more people in general, you know, let's say they represent 55, 60% of the public will and the vote comes out Fifty-four to forty-six on some particular politician, and that means this is what they want in that locality, and it's just thwarted every time. There's no other end game than it just destroys the system. Eventually, it will corrupt the entire system and everybody's faith in it to to the, such a degree that now you've dis, now you've destroyed the majority of people's belief that any of it actually works. That's that is not I in my personal opinion that's not American. I mean, there's been a lot of crazy things that this country has done over the years and, and not great things at times. But I like to think, hearkening to Lincoln, that if, if we're going to follow our better angels and like at least try to preserve the system itself, you can't actively attack it. And you can't actively put in place things that are, have no other ultimate purpose than to destroy it. I mean, I guess the excuse you might have from a, a Georgian leg, legislature legislator who voted for that would be, well, we just think we're going to win so it's fine, and we do want to protect against voter fraud, which everybody, nobody can prove actually exists in any meaningful way. But that doesn't matter. It's what happens if you lose and you actually throw this out. Because if you think you can win on the merits, you wouldn't put that in the put that provision in the law in the first place.
0: Yeah, absolutely, uh, and le- and that's uh, thank you for raising that uh, that point about uh, voter fraud. Again, this is all supposed to be uh, be uh, to make sure that the non-existent voter fraud not happen again. Just think about that for a moment. And uh, it all does, again, back to Alex Jones, you just make something up, whether it's to make money, to win an election, uh, to entertain yourself, to, uh, uh, get people to cheer for you, just make something up. Uh, and then when you're hit with the consequences for having made it up, <laughs> you, what you say it's performance art, you say, uh, you didn't really mean it. You shouldn't be taken seriously, but there's a wreckage there's a wreckage uh, that you've caused. All right. We're going to close. It's a, weird,
1: it's a weird place to be when you're weakened and crippled by believing in objective reality.
0: Yes. That's a very frustrating place to be. Wow. And it's true. That's where we're at right now. Uh, we'll close with what, uh, for my standpoint was a, uh, judicial victory. Uh, I think it happened yesterday. I'm losing track of time, Jim. Uh, but uh, my schedule is a little off since I mo- uh, went to California for, uh, a moment in my life. But uh, anyway, I think it was yesterday. Uh, a judge in Texas ruled that the uh, Texas uh, anti-abortion law was unconstitutional. Last time we were on the show, we talked about it at length. Uh, I was really excited when I saw the headline. And then when I read further, I realized it was just one judge. He could be overruled by the appellate judge and then it, uh, the appellate court, excuse me, and then it would go to the Supremes. So this fight is a long way from being over, correct?
1: It is a long way from being over, Um, and you're right at this, wherever you want to start uh, for trying to file some kind of a civil action to invalidate or enjoin or otherwise prohibit the effectiveness of a law, in this case, the proponents brought their case to the United States District Court in Texas, that ruling does have the impact of staying the law temporarily, um, because as the, I think it's a 130-page ruling. I did not have time to read that in anticipation of today's show, but, <laughs> but it, you know, it goes through, and essentially, in very bold terms, it outlines why this is completely and obviously unconstitutional. And I guess I felt a little bit of uh, affirmation that it ran along the same lines that we discussed, that even this, you know, it, which was one of the things that was very frustrating about the Supreme Court's refusal to enjoin the law before it even took place on September 1st was the slim majority essentially saying that they were sort of confounded by this novel enforcement mechanism. And what I'm referring to is most of the time, if you're filing a lawsuit like this to stop a law from going into effect, you sue the governor or the secretary of state or somebody from a department, an official, but Texas's law came up with this or utilized this novel concept of the enforcement mechanism would be that individual citizens, anyone would have standing to sue anyone that they had reasonable belief or some evidence had been involved in an abortion. And so the Supreme Court's, it wasn't a decision. It was like a three-page memo, essentially, um, basically said, well, this this novel system doesn't, it's, it's, it's not right before us and it's a little unusual and it does not give us the normal mechanism of, of enjoining an official from taking official acts, and therefore we have no power to do anything here. So this judge took that to task as well, and among other things, essentially said, that doesn't, that's not a constraint on my power as a judge here. If this is unconstitutional, it's unconstitutional however they get to enforce it. So for now, it is not going anywhere, but the next place it will go judicially is a review by a panel of the Fifth Circuit. Again, United States, it's district court, circuit court, Supreme Court. You go to the circuit court next, that's where you file your first appeal. You'll get, they will get a panel of three judges that is randomly assigned to each case. That can matter if, if politics are going to have any bearing on what those judges decide. Uh, Lawyers like to think that it is not the only factor that decides it, but, Ben Jarowski's a cynic, so he thinks that's the only factor that decides how judges rule in one case or another. Um, but I, I sympathize with your point. Uh,
0: I would say more of a skeptic than a cynic, but uh, that's a, a fine distinction there. Uh, and uh, I would also amend your sentence to say it is the predominant, may not be the. Only oh, uh, uh, really dominant. Um, uh, yes, uh, c- carefully editing uh, my my guests' free speech, which they're free <laughs> to say uh, whatever they want at the Ventrosky Show. Uh, Jim, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us, not just because you're a busy guy, but because uh, <laughs> it's in the middle of the White Sox game one of the playoffs. This man is a diehard White Sox fan, ladies and gentlemen. And so, like I said earlier, Adolfo Mondragon was a good sport to drag himself away from. Uh, the White Sox game and Jim Coogan is as well. We'll leave with an update. I know somewhere in your office there must be a computer screen with an update. So are the White Sox still losing one to nothing, Jim? Um,
1: so good news, bad news, good news. Good news is I was very excited about the playoffs happening today. Bad news is it's now five nothing in the fifth inning. Houston is <laughs> But the good news is, or I guess the spin is, I shouldn't have watched it at all. I should have just done this show with you and not watched any of that. <laughs> But it's only game one, and I believe in this team. I think they've, I think they've still got some fight in them. And this game is only in the fifth inning. So we'll all see. right,
0: it could be a miracle uh, ending. All right, uh, Jim Coogan, thank you very much. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk uh, legal affairs with us uh, as always. All right, always my pleasure, Ben. All right, that's Jim Coogan. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.